Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. This week in sports, the main spelling bee has been shaken to its core as wrong side of the track's spelling savant, seven-year-old Mike McMurray of Ludlow, was eliminated on the word cemetery. When asked about his exit from the competition, he looked into the sunset, pulled a cigarette from the pocket of his leather jacket, and replied, I didn't learn to spell from fancy books and schooling like some of these kids. Life taught me all the spelling I'll ever need, before riding off on his Schwinn. Just another reminder that sometimes, well-read is better. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. What up, constant readers? And today... We are finishing up with Pet Cemetery. We're going to the end of the book. Uh, if you've listened this far, the spoilers ahead if you haven't read it. And we have Ben leading the discussion. Ooh boy, guys. <laughs> um, so right off the bat, gonna have to say, I think we've said this before. I don't know if this is gonna be a fun one, guys. <laughs> Not fun emotionally, but fun to talk about. I should have yeah. brought tissues. <laughs> yes. This is the most intense upsetting ending to a book (laughs) fuck let's get into it let's go for it man Uh, by jumping right into a two-year-old's funeral okay so they are at the cemetery they are burying gage and everybody's going home and this was sad because judd is putting everybody into the car and ellie's clutching her picture of her and gage on the sled and rachel's you know kind of dazed and he, he gives her and Lewis this look, like this cold, hard look. And Rachel doesn't understand it because she doesn't know what's been going on between them. But Lewis knows that he's giving him a, you know, get your shit together. Your <laughs> daughter's here. I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. Kind of glance. This struck me really hard because he's not really with his family during their grief. And all of the other family stuff that we've had throughout this book it was so awesome and you want to see how he confronts this death with Mm -hmm. his family and how they pull each other through it and deal with their grief together and because he's his mind is already gone to where we know he's gonna go (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. that he can't be there with them in that moment he's not present at all not in the least well it's he i think he says something to the fact that he can't uh he can't be there for them because all of his grief belongs to Gage. All of his feelings belong to Gage. There's no room for anybody else's. Well, there's no room for him to really grieve either because he knows that this isn't the end. Like he's not, he hasn't consciously come to that choice yet, but he has. <laughs> he absolutely has, which is uh, a good leading into our next chapter. Uh, it's that night and everyone's home and uh, Lewis is sedating Rachel, which is already, I thought it would play a lot more into the rest of the book. Um, because since this has happened, he's been just essentially feeding Rachel Valium. Yep. <laughs> instead of comforting her. Yes. Uh, which is deeply upsetting and uh, really plays into that, like, He's been so with his family throughout Mm -hmm. the whole book. And he's been, despite being kind of a dick and having his flaws, I'd say he's really good with his family. He really, truly loves them. He's good at dealing with those tough moments. But that, that's gone. And this leads into uh, this chapter, which is really interesting, because you say, you know, he hasn't made the decision. But throughout this book, it's so obvious to us that he has. Mm-hmm. He sedates Rachel and he says, I'm, I'm going out for, for a drive. And he tells her and himself that he's going out for pizza. But he goes to the pizza place that's closest to Pleasant View Cemetery mm-hmm. in Bangor. And immediately we're like, oh, already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought he was he was going for it. I, I do like that he 
it reminded me of uh, the first time that he climbs over the deadfall or he tries to, and he's like, uh, shouldn't climb this tree. No, this is a stupid idea as he climbs the tree. Mm-hmm. And we all laughed about it and joking yeah. about it. And then in this, this piece, he's approaching grave robbing purely from an academic <laughs> standpoint. Right. Like, yeah, I'm never going to No, this would be stupid, but I could do this. And it seems like it's that same effect. And I guess I, you don't realize then that that was probably the power of, of the pet cemetery mm-hmm. also. And I didn't, I don't think we talked about this in our last episode, but um, Judd had pointed out to them when they had their conversation and he confronted him about what he thinks he might be trying to do with Gage. And he tells him about Timmy Batterman. He, the decisions he made for Gage's burial make it easier for him to bust him out. He got a uh, grave liner instead of a, Something Uh, that seals that you'd have to like have a a machine to open. mm -hmm. And uh, so he's driving around and he goes to the cemetery and he's essentially just trying to justify this in his head. And I want to hear what you guys thought about some of his thoughts. He's thinking about how Gage would come back and the the practicalities of of having an undead kid. At some point, he's he's saying, well, I could do it because I'd still love him, even if he came back wrong, mm-hmm. uh, like church, kind of slower and different. I'd still love him, though. I think his, he even says, like, even if he never learned to write his own name, I would still love yeah, him. Or like if I'd, he was in diapers for the rest, yeah. of, the rest of his he's, life. Which is... Comparing him to someone with physical and mental right and different abilities, yes, not an undead child, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Which, but those considerations that he's taking into account, like people do this, but that is that's that's a good good question. question. Oh wait, no. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I guess he probably would because I mean, Spot died of old age. Oh yeah, yeah that's you did a good say point. That. Okay, dang. Oh, my brain, <laughs> my brain just went off somewhere else, and then it came right back. <laughs> uh, but th- these are all like fair points, but it's completely ignoring the reality of the fact. There's a point where he, he his brain keeps trying to br- bust in and be like, "No, no, Lewis," slapping his hand away. Mm-hmm. But he, he keeps saying. Well, what would people, how how would I explain this? And he just says, no, I'm not going to think about that. He's trying to talk himself into being reasonable and realistic and not being influenced. And so every time he has these thoughts, he's thinking it through more logically. And then he gets to the, okay, what are people going to say when all of a sudden my son's alive? Everybody's been to his funeral. Here he is. He's like, that's not an important thing to think about right now. It's like, just crazy brush most important thing to think about. <laughs> the note that I made after reading this back and forth with himself is that every moment in Lewis's mind is agony. Mm-hmm. It was, I, I felt so terrible having to read his inner thoughts because it was torture. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying before, he has not only the grief of that loss, but the burden of this knowledge that if he really wanted to, he could bring him back. And he equates it to murder. He says, if I don't right. do this, it's like I'm killing him a second time because uh, I can do something about it and I'm not. I was explaining as I was reading uh, this scene, I was uh, I had lunch with a friend of mine. And I was telling her about uh, what was happening in this scene, like how it leads up, because she'd never read it or seen it. Mm. And her summary of this entire build up to where we are was just, "Ooh, that's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's yeah, true. yep. He comes back w- without pizza. <laughs> Come on, Lewis. <laughs> and he does the the worst possible thing uh he sends rachel and ellie away not good for the grieving process right. no and did you guys think that he was going to grab gage that night did you think he was gonna go for it before he does before he he's like 
no, I can't tonight. And then he leaves. Did you guys think he was going to go for it? Because I no, thought he was I, fucking going he in. Wasn't, he didn't have any tools. Sure, but he was insane a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, think back to the first chapter. We know that he's uh, methodical. Sure. And, that, uh, that makes sense. He, he goes home and he tells Rachel and Ellie, listen, it is bad for you to be here. Um, everything here has has gauge memories attached to it. You two go to Chicago, go see your family, and uh, and I'll be there in a few days. I've got to take care of things here. He does something really manipulative and cruel too. Mm-hmm. There, they had a scare with Gage when he was a couple months old. I think mm-hmm. they thought he had some brain thing. Uh, and- hydro, hydroencephal. No, I don't remember. Yeah, but it, it was serious, and so they had to get him checked out. And he asks Rachel, you know, remember when that happened? If if he had had that, and he wasn't, you know, the same, would you? have still loved him. You know, she's like, of course. He's like, would you have wanted him here with us or would you have wanted to put him in an institution? She's like, here with us. Why would you ask that? And his brain comes up with this horrific and really good lie. Well, I thought what with what happened with your sister Zelda, that that might be difficult for you. And she's like, no, it's our son. It would have been totally mm. different. It's like, and, and I think if, if he wasn't already going to do it, which I think he was anyway, that cemented it. Definitely. That was um, his way of being like, so you're on board. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. Signed up. He he lies a lot in this uh, in this because when he approaches her and says, you need to go, um, he, he describes it as like these lies just come to him. And Rachel knows something's up mm-hmm. because he's not a great liar. <laughs> <laughs> And just because I think Rachel is, like I said, they they've been married for so long, they they have an understanding. She says, "What are you hiding?" And he's like, "Not nothing." And what could he be hiding? I mean, she there's no way for her to guess at it, so she kind of just gives up, which I totally understand because your mind is never going to go to, "Oh, you're getting rid of me, so you can dig up our dead son and bury mm. him in this burial ground, bring him back to life." Well, if she never figured out about the prostitute, she was not going <laughs> to figure out about uh, digging up their kid. <laughs> he rushes them out so fast because in all of his madness, he's like, oh, the the person who came back to life was so messed up and it was so bad because that was oh, like weeks. Maybe it could have been like several weeks. So as long as I get, if I can get Gage in as soon as possible, odds are he'll be fine. There's no basis to describe to like validate this complete conjecture of the rules of the burial ground except for that church is kind of okay but a cat and a human person are very different things <laughs> he does make one point that i actually agree with i feel bad for saying this but when he <laughs> he calls um timmy and henratty the bull exceptions to the rule yeah kind of i yeah. guess they are are they we only know how many times do we concretely know? We know Church, we know Judd's dog, we know Timmy, and we know Henratty the bull. But That's many, literally though, because half it's, of the things because that's it's been passed, But it's there. been passed down, so it's it's a lot. And Judd is the one who said he's he'd never heard of anybody coming back mean except for those two. I'm, I guess I'm basing it off of mm-hmm. the information Judd gave us. So that could be inaccurate, but yeah. <laughs> Pretty much everything with this whole thing is hearsay. It is. And uh, this is, is this also when we find out uh, about the truck driver? We find out that the I guy who is driving the truck. That was last. Well, they find out that the truck driver who hit Gage tried to kill himself mm-hmm. because he was so grief stricken over what happened. And uh, his his wife took the kids and left him. So he was all alone and his life was like over pretty much. So he tried to kill himself and they found out he's the dudes never even had a speeding ticket. And it just so happened. He was, he, he got an urge that he couldn't describe. He just felt that he had to put the pedal to the metal and Mm -hmm. just go. And that was the moment that I was like, this entity is so much more powerful than I 
ever realized until this, but this was the moment that it all sank in mm-hmm. th- that no one stands a chance. Yeah. It creeps up on you the way that King brings it out. It's not, you don't see it coming. It's not something that's really, there's just this minor influence here and there. And then you have this moment and you're like, Oh my God, this thing is controlling so much. Like what other things does it control? Is it exactly. the reason that there's a road there? And it's at Lewis. You want, Lewis, he's our hero. You want him to pull through and you want him to uh, pull himself from the mm-hmm. brink of the darkest he can get before Ooh. it's too late. I, we're going to come back to that because <laughs> I have a question much later. Uh, okay. That will just remember that. <laughs> okay. So uh, Rachel leaves and that night Lewis gets a call from Erwin Goldman, Rachel's dad. And this killed me. Because Erwin calls, uh, and Lewis is immediately like, oh, what fucking now? Because he's still so angry, rightfully so. But Erwin has called to apologize. And at first, Lewis he thinks that he's just, um, he's only calling to apologize because he's won. Mm-hmm. Because he got what he wanted. He has sent Rachel back to his to Irwin and he's essentially calling to gloat and I wrote down uh Lewis is losing everything to bring Gage back he's pushing his family away and giving up his pride to let Irwin win and gloat over him but that's not true because Irwin is legitimately sorry yeah he even acknowledges that you probably think that I'm only apologizing because I'm getting what I want and that's not true mm-hmm but he's the, also drunk. He's also, we find he's out later. Definitely also drunk. But this also, it's even more sad because we find out before Thanksgiving that, you know, he was, he never was planning to forgive Erwin for his entire life. He was mm-hmm. ready to hold on to that grudge forever. This is just a moment that shows that if at any other time, if it didn't take this big moment, if he had ever just been the bigger man and made the move to bury the hatchet, this could have happened sooner. Do you guys think that if he had allowed himself to forgive him, because he kind of closes himself off to Irwin, and he he calls up the image of him bringing out his pocketbook to harden his heart, do you think if he would have let go in that moment and forgiven him that what happens after wouldn't have happened? I think so, because he even, he even says um, that there there's this split second where he almost he thinks about saying you know what okay and putting down the phone packing his bags and going to chicago he almost gives up and and lets go and just decides to grieve but then he he hardens his heart because a man's heart is stonier and what happens happens yeah you tend it good (laughs) <laughs> in the words of Ben <laughs> tend it real good can we talk about the when they're at the airport and he's uh, Lewis is seeing them off yes because that that broke my heart too Ellie knows something's wrong you know and it's not just Rachel who's like he's hiding something something's messed up and she tells him about a dream she had and they were at Gage's funeral and the casket was empty and when she, when she went home and looked in his crib, his crib was also empty, but there was dirt in it. Mm-hmm. Why does he keep doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Ellie definitely has The Shining, right? We we touched on it. Yeah. I think we mentioned, made a joke about well, it. Does last she episode. or is Pascal helping her? I think both, right? Like The Shining is tied to ghosts, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about no shining. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, 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 I mean, I guess she's, she's definitely prophetic. Well, like she I, definitely has. I only question that because we've haven't had anything to indicate she was before this. Mm. That's true. Before Gage died. That is true. So that's why I thought it was mostly Pascal's influence. Or whatever is using Pascal to communicate, mm-hmm. if that is the case. Another question that we don't ever really get yeah, an answer to. Never. They head off. Uh, they head to uh, Chicago, 
and immediately Lewis gets to work mm-hmm. buying uh, buying supplies. Buying murder tools is what I would think if I was that clerk. <laughs> and then the dumb excuses, he's like over talking, oh, I'm going to do this with this and this. It's like, yeah, you're going to murder someone. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. So the, the we, we talked about it earlier. His plan is fucking nutso butso <laughs> when he's standing outside the cemetery. But now in this moment, when he goes over it beat by beat of like, I'll do this. This is what I'll do. Gage will come home to me. I'll be the only one. If he is good, we'll take the family. We'll move to Florida. They'll come live with us. If he comes back bad or comes back too off, I will just kill him, rebury him, and no one will ever be the wiser. And I wrote, well, fuck, that seems downright reasonable. I'm on board, Lewis. I, it, uh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, he's like thinking about it. He he buys the supplies and then goes and lays up in a motel. Yeah. And he's thinking about all of this. And he, yeah, he's like step by step saying, well, two possibilities. Gage will come back. Everything will work out. Or it'll be a goddamn monster. And he says, quote, and I'll make a diagnosis. Ugh, I don't <laughs> like that. So I forgot upsetting. about that. <laughs> Do you uh, guys did you guys think about the first chapter, those first few paragraphs when he was thinking about what what his next step would be if Gage was good? And it was very similar because it was again that fantasy of I'm gonna run away to Disney and yeah. we'll live happily ever after. Except in the first chapter, it was just him. He left his family behind and now he's got Gage with him. Yeah, Disney beca- is sort of it's Lewis's go-to when shit goes bad. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to Disney. It was just, it made me kind of sad. It's like, oh. <laughs> um, let's just be clear. There is nothing not sad about literally everything in this last third of the book. <laughs> that <true>. is <laughs> more than true. Well, and what about the psychological toll of, even if he was okay afterwards, going through the process of digging up your dead son, his oh. body, and taking it out of the grave I feel like that would break my mind. It almost uh, broke well, my mind reading it. Well, I think uh, <laughs> I think you're on to something. Because, <laughs> um, spoilers, shit don't go good. There's one other thing in this, Josh, t- you touched on this, that he says, you know, if Gage comes back and something's wrong, I'll kill him. And you said, that sounds so reasonable. Bullshit. <laughs> All right, that's fair. <laughs> and here's why, because... Like I mentioned earlier, Lewis equates doing nothing with killing him. And he can't do that. So if he can't kill him through inaction, how does he think he's going to literally murder him? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's that's lying a, to that's himself. a real good point. <laughs> this whole thing is him lying to himself. This would just be like justifying anything. Book two would be Gage chained up in the basement. For the rest of his life. Oh God! <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> Sorry. <you guys>. Wow. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I got. I man, my brain's reeling from that. That that is. Uh, but we've we've already seen that movie and we've seen it done better. The end of Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it's he goes to a shed and him and Gage play video games <laughs> while he's chained in a shed. It's a happy ending. <laughs> that is literally the happiest possible ending in this scenario. So um he, he's laying in this uh motel and he goes to sleep. As uh Lewis is sleeping, the plane is landing in Chicago and Ellie is in hysterics. This is so sad. She falls down and just lies there, does not move. And people are, you know, in a hurry and they're walking over her. And it, it's like, have you ever felt so horrible that you would just not even have the will to get up and move? Yes, but I wasn't, uh, how old is Ellie? Six. A six-year-old, you weren't a six-year-old girl? Six-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. She's so young and having to deal with, not only the horrible grief of losing a little brother, but um, being psychically tormented by ghosts. Uh, because she tells Rachel, Pax Cow came <laughs> to me. Pax Cow. Uh, 
Which is that's pretty king. That yeah, that, that is that that's that adorable. Changing, yeah, just the little kid talk and Rachel being like, "Huh, what could that mean?" Sure. Well, and I get that. Like, she's that's probably a hard name for a six year old to say, mm-hmm. and she's never heard it before. Mm-hmm. And, and she's before probably this never moment. seen a ghost before. Also that, <laughs> unless she does have The Shining. <laughs> and um, but yeah, Rachel says. Uh, Huh, I wonder, and they're walking through the airport when suddenly it hits it, it clicks in her head. Oh, I know who Pascal is. And, and Ellie can't because of how Rachel is about death. Ellie was not exposed to any information about his death. Nope. And so Rachel runs, she freaks out, and she immediately calls Judd, and Judd knows. As soon as he hears, I'm in Chicago, and Lewis isn't because mm-hmm. he he has felt that same pull. That's why he took him there in the first place. Judd back in Ludlow. Oh my God! Can we talk about the choice that Judd makes? Because I'm not sure if this was his choice or if it was the you know whatever influence the burial ground has over him. Because he can feel the pull of it, but this time it's not like this seductive thing. It's more like a stay out of this like a a danger warning thing and he thinks so he decides to stay up and wait for lewis to come home and he thinks about going to the cemetery but he decides against it he also doesn't call the police and leave a tip that would encourage them to patrol the cemetery is the one note i have for this chapter so the choice holy shit that would have been great i never considered that the choice that he makes will mean that lewis will have gone through all this work of pulling up the body and bringing Uh it home and like why even let him get to that point why even let him do that to himself so was that the burial ground or an old man i I think judd just might be a dumb old man (laughs) Uh, or here's another possibility that would have been really hard to write around like, uh, <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because even later, um, Lewis is at a diner eating and he has this moment where he's like, I wish somebody I know would come see me. And that would kind mm-hmm. of like unravel all of his plans. And Judd had even thought about going and having dinner with him and trying to talk him out of it. And you're like, he wants to be stopped. Mm-hmm. But the, it, the its influence is too great. He can't control himself. So maybe Judd can't control making a better decision. (laughs) I'm on the side because I also never considered calling the police. So I'm a dumb old man also. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Judd sits down at his window uh, to wait for Lewis for some reason, (laughs) but he does it in true Judd fashion with his cigarettes and a six pack and in the dark, in the dark and dark. Yeah. I'm not going to fall asleep. (laughs) Yeah. This isn't going to be creepy. And then we, we jump back to Chicago and Rachel and Ellie are like just chock full of freaking the fuck out. And they're, they're back and forth with each other is so cool and so sad because Lewis is cut off from this. And it's again, that Mm -hmm. whole family dynamic where together they could be so strong and Mm -hmm. Rachel, it's like Rachel and Ellie are almost having this telepathic conversation. They just both know. And uh, I, I did want to point this out because it's the first time in a while that while they're having this conversation, um, Ellie is described as making a face that would have been funny if. <laughs> and I don't think I've pointed this one out in a book we've done yet, but that is one of my favorite kingisms. Uh, the we talked about that. Have we? Yeah. Okay, good because I I love. Uh, oh, it would have been funny if uh, only this horrible, horrible thing weren't happening. The great thing here, though, is that Rachel puts her foot down and is like, something is wrong. I can't explain it. I have I have to get back. Despite the fact that I just got here, I've got to turn around and get back. And she somehow manages to get all of the last minute one seat left to get her way back home. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a question that in this, uh, before she heads out, there's just this one line that she looks at her dad and thinks to herself, he looks like Judd. Does that, does that mean anything <laughs> to you guys? <laughs> I, has... I just thought she was realizing for the first time that her dad is old. Okay. 
Uh, it, it just, it stuck out to me that it was, maybe he was trying to use some literary, like, trick well, to be like, well, Judd is trying to keep Lewis away from the pet cemetery. I, and I see what is. you're saying, and I think that's a cool idea, but I kind of took it as Rachel, um, she's putting her foot down, like you said, mm-hmm. and she has had to confront death in a way that she never would have before she's finally told lewis all about zelda and has confronted her past and now she's confronting death again in a different way she's recognizing that her parents are getting old and they're going to die Mm -hmm. someday probably in the near future okay and i don't think she would have noticed that before i think her brain would have not let her see that yeah age and frailty that's fair uh so we cut back to lewis and the time has come and he's trying to get into Pleasant View. In this last leg of the story, we we come to learn that the the pet cemetery has all of this influence that it is moving all of our characters around and pretty much has been for who knows how long. Like slow moving projectiles aimed not at where he was but rather at the place where he would be. Uh Lewis mm-hmm. thinks about this and so the pet cemetery is is so powerful that it can bring Rachel back from Chicago. It can do all these things, but it can't unlock the pet, uh, the, the, the cemetery. (laughs) (laughs) He does have a really hard time getting into that place. He really does. You said something interesting. I, I don't know if I agree. You said the, the cemetery's influence is what brings Rachel back. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. I don't know if it extends to Chicago, but I think that Pascal, well, and maybe that's the influence. Like okay, it's yeah, that's sending true. Pascal, not not the influence of the burial ground because that's like a negative thing, but whatever is controlling Pascal or his spirit mm-hmm. is with them in Chicago. I think. I, I guess my uh, thinking is that it's it wants her back. It does because it's her. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's got but its hooks it, in the whole family. It controls when she gets back, you know. Yes, that is true. It sets up all those obstacles that she overcomes hmm. to make sure that she gets back at the exact time yeah. to make it the most opportunity. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize that. I was I was seeing the obstacles as it trying to keep her away, not delay her for the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. <laughs> Lewis almost fucking kills himself getting out. <laughs> Can I please read the string of puns that he has in his head as he's yes. imagining? I like would he's, straight up love nothing more than that. He's, you know, trying to <laughs> stake out the cemetery and it's just in the middle of a neighborhood. Like there are apartment buildings on the other side of the street. People are awake and moving. A dog's barking and he's imagining somebody seeing him. And <laughs> it's... Sorry, I love puns. <laughs> hey, police. I just saw the world's oldest, slowest kid climbing into Pleasant View Cemetery. Looked like he was dying to get in. Yeah, looked like a grave matter to me. Kidding? Oh, no, I'm dead earnest. Maybe you ought to dig into it. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> you look so Boom. pleased with yourself as you're reading this. <laughs> I love puns. <laughs> It was well. It's 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 shit like that where it's almost like it's just not matching up. His actions don't match up with his brain anymore. Mm-hmm. It is every time we're in Lewis's head now, straight up fucking madness. Yeah, it's just nonsense. A good chunk of time, he is quickly losing losing his grip on his mind and a tree branch <laughs> uh, because the way he gets in is he he climbs a tree after almost being spotted by uh, security or a cop. And shimmies across this tree branch over this, what, nine foot high fence Mm -hmm. with sharp spears at the top. And it's weirdly tense. It is super tense. I thought you were going to say it's weirdly testicles. Because he had to read (laughs) a lot about his balls. Because he kept imagining them getting his balls skewered by the wrought iron fence. Yes. uh, Also, my primary concern. Yeah, but I don't know. It's it's weird to be, because you're like, ah, I hope he doesn't fall on this fence. It would be better if he had fallen on the fence. I don't know, man. Have you ever had your balls skewered by a wrought iron fence? 
No. <laughs> have you ever been eaten by your child? I don't have kids, so exactly. the answer to that is <laughs> not, not yet. yet. <laughs> um, but he makes it over, and he falls, and he he bangs his knee on a gravestone really bad, but he makes it over. Yeah, that could have been the end of that journey. Like, his kneecap could have just shattered. But also, would that have stopped him? No. Think he would have just dragged himself on one leg? Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely, because he keeps asking himself. He's like, am I really in control here? Could I stop now if I wanted to? The When he finally gets to the grave and sets down all, all his supplies and he starts just going at it, the line that I wrote down was that he, when it occurs to him as he's digging, this is going to be the easiest digging he has tonight. And I got just this chill up my spine as I read it because that moment sunk in of like, this is the beginning of just the longest goddamn night. Did you guys feel like this part was written more like it? I felt like it was harder to get through. I was reading it slowly and it took its time. Like there were more details than there had been thus far in the book. It feels like. You feel like you're there the whole time. I wonder if that's because, if that's partially related to how when they bury Church and he gets back and it's only been like a few hours and he's like, God, I thought we were up there for like eight hours, but we were only up there for like two. I wonder if that's kind of what this is going for. Like if you're you're getting all this detail and it seems like all of this stuff is actually only happening in the span of 15 minutes, half an hour, but it's taken us 30 pages. That's a good point. Do you guys love how he he digs up Gage's coffin and then cut to Rachel? What's Rachel <laughs> up to? What's Rachel doing? Yeah, and she the answer is she's renting a car. Yep. Back to <laughs> But then when it cuts back, I almost threw up. I had to put the book down. Me too. Oh, Ben, tell us what happens next. <laughs> Lewis has dug up the the coffin, and he gets the grave liner open. First, before he opens the grave, I want to point out that there was a, a second before he started digging where he says he can't remember Gage's face, mm-hmm. which is just the most tragic goddamn thing. Made all the worse when he opens the the coffin and his first thought is gage's head is gone i deeply regret that i stopped reading right there to recover because if i had just read on (laughs) i would have saved myself (laughs) some grief i had to stop i was like oh my god i can't i can't deal with this right now (laughs) i paused and thought i might throw up ben you just recounting that Made me feel like I might throw <laughs> up. It just reminded me of that pit, like that, that drop in my stomach when I read that line, and I thought I was gonna go insane. My my note after this was Gage's head is gone, and then immediately fake out. His head is just covered in dark moss. That's not better. No, that <laughs> is when I decided that. Uh, so everybody knows this now in case I don't get it into my will. Cremate me. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets Gage and so much happens just taking Gage out like internally because Lewis thinks about how if he's found right now, he will kill whoever finds him. Yeah. He thinks about when he lifts Gage he has this brief moment where he's afraid he'll fall apart in his arms and he'll just scream and never stop. It's the most terrifying thing I've ever read. It it's, hands down. Mm-hmm. The the last, we're, we're in the last like 40, 50 pages of this book. From here to the end, felt like an entire book on its own. Yeah. Because so much horrible, horrifying unbelievably dark stuff happens. Lewis pulls Gage out and he sits and rocks him on the edge of the grave. Terrible. And he wraps him up and he he gets him out by climbing a crypt and just throwing him over a fence. Oh, God. 
And uh, he gets him to the car and drives off with Gage sitting in the front seat. Oh, but he has to make, he has this horrible moment where he thinks that he's put him in backwards. Yeah. And he's bent the wrong way. And he literally can't go on until he feels and makes sure that he's facing the right way. Then we get another fun visit back to Rachel, where uh, Rachel has, she calls and wakes up Judd. And Judd's like, you know what? Uh, He's not here. I'm I'm here watching. You stay in a hotel. Don't don't come back. It'll be it's, fine. It's fine. You just mm-hmm. you stay in a hotel despite having come back all this way in one day. And then he hangs up the phone and he's like, I'm not gonna let this get away from me again. Immediately falls back asleep. So Lewis arrives home and heads to the pet cemetery. This okay, so he's he gets Gage's body and all the tools up to the pet cemetery and he's struggling and it's heavy and it's hard. But the moment that he reaches the deadfall, the weight no longer matters. It doesn't seem important and he can bear it. That was just so cool. Yeah, to I love that. It's like, like that influence, as strong as it is sort of outside of, of, you know, their zone. As soon as you get to that deadfall, it's so much more powerful. Between Gage and the tools that he is carrying, it has to be almost 50 pounds and it takes him 20 minutes just to get to the pet cemetery. And that's after he spent probably hours yeah, digging, digging up six feet of all dirt. all of the stress and, and all of this. the thing, yeah. The level of exhaustion he is at when he reaches that deadfall. I mean, when you get that tired at a certain point, your brain just shuts off. Mm-hmm. And how tired you are doesn't matter. It's definitely something else. When he had to drop and, like, recover, I was like, how the fuck is he going to get up those <laughs> stone steps? That was that was hell carrying a cat fresh. Then we uh, go back to Rachel, who passes a sign for Jerusalem's lot. <laughs> uh, come sleep in Jerusalem's lot. <laughs> Pass. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Imagine the book where she stops and gets a hotel for the night in Salem's lot. <laughs> Damn. Dark Tower 7. <laughs> can, uh, I, can I tell you guys that I freaking love chapter 55? Oh, yes. Fuck yeah, yes. Because the first time Lewis goes to the burial ground with Judd and Church. He recalls it later as if it was a dream. It was, you know, hazy, and we kind of get a hazy narrative of it. But now, as he's going through it with Gage, he's experiencing it, and we're experiencing it with him, and he's remembering and reliving the first time, and it's no Mm -hmm. longer hazy. And so you're getting sort of that flashback and then that present moment and it was just really cool. It's like, oh, we got that piece that we were missing. Mm-hmm. Well, and he encounters so many more terrifying things because this time he's hesitating. And it's those moments where he hesitates or he stops that whatever is out here, this force, the Wendigo, is is coming towards him. So he's walking through Little God Swamp and the fog begins to rise and it's swirling around him. And Suddenly he's engulfed in it, in this glowing white capsule that seems like it's pulsing, like the beat of some strange heart, and he never before felt so strongly the presence of nature as a coalescing force, a real being, possibly sentient. And then he hears a high gobbling laugh that ends in a sob, and then he sees a face hanging in the air ahead of him, leering in eyes yellowish-gray, sunken, gleaming, mouth drawn down, Lower lip turned out, showing blackish-brown stained teeth worn down almost to nubs. Ears that curve like horns. Its tongue lolls out, long and pointed, dirty yellow, coated with peeling scales, and the worst thing in the world happens. (laughs) One of those scales pulls back like a manhole cover being lifted, and a white worm oozes out. I wrote, the face of the Wendigo? Question mark. No, (laughs) I, uh, everything in this is just fucking terrifying. Uh, most of all though, is what happens next. Next, he hears something huge coming through and all the sounds of the forest go silent except for this lumbering beast. He thinks it's the Wendigo, which I think is what he just saw with that face, but I don't know. Who knows? This reminded me of The Mist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, ending Josh, said of that the movie, The Mist. Yeah. Uh, and I believe this chapter really makes our 
this might be a thinny, uh-huh. yeah. uh, way more plausible. I think we said that that was, we yeah. decided you were right. <laughs> yeah, because uh, he even, he looks down right as he enters and sees strange tropical vegetation. And he thinks, had never seen that in Maine before. Mm-hmm. Never seen that before ever. Ever. He's not, he's not in Maine. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, he reaches the burial ground. Uh, and notices that the stones in the burial ground are spiral, just like, just like in the pet cemetery. And then we cut back to Rachel. <laughs> oh, but first he he looks up, mm. and he this is a part that oh, reminds yes. me of revival. He describes a mad sprawl of stars, no constellations he recognized, which is really really terrifying and makes makes you feel otherworldly. But also, I know like two constellations. So <laughs> that's not that's fair. Uh, the you most. Micmac Burial Ground is another club. Well, it's just another. I mean, the club is just like it's an it's a nature club. Dimension. It's a nature club. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Welcome sure. to the Micmac Nature Club. <laughs> You'll hike and into so, infinity. <laughs> instead of Stevens, it's the Wendigo. Uh, <laughs> if the Wendigo tries to bring me drinks, I'll go hang out. <laughs> we we cut back to Rachel, and she's she's driving, and uh, the force is starting to really hit her. She she feels like she's running into a giant rubber band that is holding her back, and she almost crashes her car. And I wrote down, like, will she make it or is she going to crash and die? And then answered my own question, of course she'll make it. It'll be worse that way. (sighs) Yeah. And she decides to stop and get coffee. And then her car won't start. And that is the the moment where she is like, something is keeping me. Mm -hmm. Like, there is not, this is not random acts. I know there's something here. And it might be the last point in this book where I still felt a glimmer of hope. Then we cut back to Lewis, who is on his way back. He's basically sleptwalked his way back from the deadfall. And when he crosses, I love when he crosses back and falls down the deadfall in back into the pet cemetery. And he says, I'll be goddamned if this isn't the second graveyard I've fallen into tonight. Mm-hmm. And I'll be goddamned if two isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he makes it back and it's, it, he checks as soon as he gets home and it's 4 a.m. Uh, it's taken him all night to do this work. Well, midnight to four? Yeah. That only took four hours? Right. I get you were you were well no, yeah, only. It would take me way longer than four hours just to dig up that grave. I think That's true, I have time to see him digging up graves. Yeah. Well no, it wasn't <laughs> She's not a strong shoveler. I'm not fast. She's got a week back. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Start to finish. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah. Four hours it, to dig up. It two felt graves. much longer, yes. like we were talking earlier. Okay. That's crazy. But he makes it back and he falls asleep and he dreams once again of Disney World. Of having Gage with him in the the white unmarked ambulance. And this time, though, where every time he's thought about it, it's been like his his dream of everything will be okay. But this time he thinks about the omnipresence of Oz, mm-hmm. that it's hiding everywhere, even in Disney. Every we are constantly surrounded by death. And while he's asleep, something comes up the stairs, comes into his bedroom, and rifles through his medical bag and takes out his scalpel and then leaves. Joe wakes up to the sound of his door opening and closing. Immediately, I'm already terrified. Uh, He gets up and uh, it's church. Church is intertwining between his legs, purring and making it unstable for him to walk. And we've only heard church purr one other time. So the idea of church purring freaked me out immediately. <laughs> uh, Judd uh, makes a break for it. He knows something's about to go down. He can feel it. He, go- he goes and grabs a meat cleaver. And he goes out. And the, the sun is-, is finally starting to rise. And he can see his house is like pitch black. And he sees Gage. And the voice 
that comes out of Gage is unrecognizable to him at first and says that he's come back for revenge to kill Judd for killing him last time. Then Gage conjures Norma's voice and Norma's voice coming out of this little boy and starts saying that she like slept with all of his friends. Like she was having affairs. Like she knew about the horse he was seeing and, and me and your friends laughed behind your back as, as we had our secret trysts. Lies. Lies. I, I, Refuse to I, believe. I know. Well, and that's what I was going to ask her. Do we believe that or not? Because no, he said no. the Timmy thing, everything that came out of his mouth was true. It was only bad things. Sure. But this is also this creature inside Gage has said, this is revenge. I'm coming for you. Okay. I imagine that that is just him antagonizing him. I'll buy it because I didn't want to believe it. Either. Yeah. Which no, does I, work. Bro, I refuse to believe this about <laughs> sweet, sweet Norma. Because Judd, it, the antagonizing works because Judd goes after him. He goes to make his move. Mm-hmm. And like a dart, Church just, like, his Church has been so clumsy and falling all over himself. This is the first time a streamlined straight into his legs and trips him up and makes him fall. Gage comes down with the scalpel and Judd puts his hand up to stop it. And the scalpel goes straight through the palm of his hand. And Judd has a moment where he's seeing it and he's like, this didn't seem right. I can see the pointy end on the other side. <laughs> and then I think, and then he, he pulls it out and then Gage just starts yeah, it's a, just raining it's the down sca- blows. The scalpel came down again and again and again. Cut back to Rachel. Who unfortunately <laughs> was helped by a truck driver to get the rental car started. So she arrives in Ludlow and decides to keep good on her promise and pulls into not her driveway, but Judd's driveway. I, as Rachel approaches and she's about to ring the doorbell and she sees small muddy footprints leading into Judd's house. And I, as a person reading this was legitimately scared same 100 yeah. like, percent same unfortunately rachel rings the doorbell and when no one answers she she goes she lets herself in because she sees church covered in blood so she's calling for judd and she hears moaning and she makes her way upstairs and this whole time she's thinking of zelda and thinking about how she's coming back to get her. And when she reaches where this moaning is coming from, upstairs, she opens a door, and she sees Zelda. But her, she sees her, and she says her sickness has, has twisted her to a point where she's only two feet tall. And she's wearing the suit Gage was buried in. And she's screaming at Rachel that she's come for her and she's going to twist her back and she'll never get out of bed again. And then she realizes that it's not Zelda, it's Gage. And this is so sad because she holds her arms out, crying his name, just like Lewis thought she would. And he runs to her and he's saying, I brought you something, Mommy. And it's the scalpel. Ha! Ha! Okay, moving on. Let's... let's my very next note is, so Jerk Off Lewis is asleep during this whole thing. <laughs> he has totally forgot the part about tending his garden good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this is what he bought. Yeah, but he's not, like, he bought it and then he couldn't even set an alarm clock for <laughs> dawn. <laughs> uh, so he wakes up and he's in pain and his knee is literally the fucking worst, least of its problems. Like, uh, and this is the point. This was when I, I told you to remember what you said earlier, Josh. You said that we hope our hero survives. This was the point in the story where I wrote in my notes, do you hope Lewis survives? I do for Ellie. See, I said no. I also, at this point, would say no. Because the the hope that if all of these people die, that this closes the loop on at least one connection to the pet cemetery in hopes that something like this never happens again. But if he goes to Disney, like he now decides he's <laughs> going to do with Ellie, it won't have a hold on him. 
Unless she dies prematurely. Unless, unless that force is what brought Rachel back from Chicago. We, if, if that yeah. is true, then we know it can reach further. Anyway, he wakes up and he dreamt of the Wendigo. He dreamed, quote, he dreamed that it had touched him, spoiling all good dreams forever, rotting all good intentions. And you know what he does after this dream? My next note is, so Jackass makes, makes himself breakfast <laughs> while his best friend and wife are dead across the street. <laughs> Remember in episode one when Ben and I were like, he's kind of a jerk. And you're like, is he? And now you're like, Jackass and jerk off McGee. <laughs> Lewis is cooking breakfast. And I did write, Lewis cooking breakfast is torture. Mm-hmm. Um, because just he's just going about it because he's like, well, I, I don't think Gage will be back yet. Um, it took a while for church, so... I mean, might as well waste some time. Yeah. Until he gets a phone call Mm -hmm. from Rachel's dad saying, did she make it back? Okay. Suddenly he he realizes that he he had seen the car Rachel had rented across the street in Judd's driveway. And when he gets this call, it all clicks. As he's answering the phone, he also looks down and notices the muddy footprints. And suddenly it all he he knows he knows everything and he he says he he feels like it's a leash leading around the corner into darkness and he's following this leash and he says god he wishes oh oh if only i could drop this leash and run the other way before seeing what's at the end mm. but quote it's his leash he bought it On the phone, Rachel's dad says, you know, I need to talk to Rachel because Ellie is in the hospital. We had to sedate her because she is inconsolable saying that Pascal said it was too late. And saying that Oz the Great and Terrible has killed her mother. And they know that that was something from from Zelda. Mm -hmm. And there's... They know there's no way Ellie could know that because Mm -hmm. Rachel doesn't talk about it. And at this point, it made me think how strange it is to read a book where the main character is doomed. At this point, as soon as we, Pascal says, it's too late. Pascal is the one force of. Good. I I don't know. Good's the right answer. Not bad. (laughs) Yeah. Not outright evil. So Lewis retraces the steps, finds his scalpel's gone, and he he just says he gets what he needs. He goes and he grabs a can of cat food, and he has syringes and morphine. He goes over and Church is sleeping on the car, and he hold, he he sets down the cat food, and then grabs Church and injects him with a syringe full of morphine. And Church like flails away, runs back to the house, make it makes it to the steps and dies again. He walks in the house. He is met with Judd's body lying there bleeding full of these stab wounds. And he, he hears a, a baiting sound from upstairs. He goes upstairs and he sees Rachel's body. He sees Rachel's body. Then he and sees I what? would argue that's the last thing Lewis sees. Well, after he sees what's been done to it. Because he sees her and he thinks something had been at her. His sanity literally breaks. But that's when he finds Gage. Gage swings at him with the scalpel. Lewis manages to dodge. And Gage stumbles clumsily. And he has a moment where he's like, he recognizes, ah, he is just like Church. Mm-hmm. I can use this. Uh, Lewis kicks his feet out from under him, climbs on to like knees him in the back and fills two syringes full of morphine, pumps both of them in there. And as Gage dies again, there's a split second where he sees his son again, right before he dies. His face is filled with pain and he says, daddy, and he dies. And the fact that this final confrontation is so easy, there's no challenge. There's no, there was never. It's a clumsy undead two year old. There was never any question that Lewis was could better him. Yeah. If he had set his alarm, maybe. But <laughs> Judd and Rachel would be alive. But the fact that it's so 
It's all the sadder. Right after Gage dies and falls on his face, he picks him up and he feels for a pulse. And it says he's a doctor again for the last time in his life. Yeah. And then he crawls into a corner for two hours, huddling, sucking his thumb. Yeah. And then when he pulls himself together, he wraps Rachel in a sheet, covers Judd's house in gasoline, strikes a match, and walks away. We then go to Steve Masterson, Lewis's friend from work who is coming to check on Lewis and arrives to find uh, the house burning down fully in flames. It's gone. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees a shape carrying a white bundle walking into the woods. So he follows it and he catches up to Lewis and Lewis's hair is white and he's carrying Rachel and Steve can see that it's Rachel and he thinks He's killed her. He's gone insane. And Lewis is going over the deadfall and he's telling Steve, you know, I got to bury her. I could really use a hand. And Steve feels that pull like he wants to go with him. There's something to help. There's something secret beyond this deadfall. And he wants to know what it is. And he starts up and his footing is sure. And then he has like this moment of clarity and he realizes this is not a good idea. And he stumbles back and he almost like brains himself on a, a yeah. stone or something. And he he leaves him. Lewis goes on. And thinks he, he doesn't remember the day. But in the dead of night, he wakes up thinking of a giant in the woods that had almost touched him. And he never goes into Ludlow again for the rest of his life. Leading to our epilogue. On page, Lewis talking to the police who have no suspicions of him. Uh, Lewis wearing a, a hat to cover his white hair and gloves to cover his ruined hands. And he goes into his house and plays solitaire uh, all day until he hears a door open and the noise of someone climbing the stairs stops directly behind him and a hand falls on his shoulder. Darling, it says. The fucking scariest end to a book. Holy shit. Okay, so my question for you guys before we do our ratings. If you were in Lewis's position, this is a question we all want to ask. Mm -hmm. Would you do it? If you had the power to fight the pet cemetery, like if you had the power to fight the pole. Right. Let's assume that you could make that choice. Would you make that choice? Then yeah. You would do it? No. No. no oh. like, yeah, I would fight it. Oh, because like, I, I would totally do it, I think. No, because <laughs> we have been given. Okay, you guys are pulling a Lewis right now. Oh, yeah, if I could fight it, I could probably fight it. You have <laughs> literally no reason to believe that you could. <laughs> Every Gosh, single thing in this book. Our are going to come back messed up. <laughs> fuck. Fuck you guys. You're on your own. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to get Judd murdered. Um, (laughs) My question. Here's my question because we didn't touch on it. The Wendigo's an it, you guys. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because uh, at at some point, Lewis says that he thinks that the pet cemetery and this this being that uh, presides over it, it feeds on grief mm-hmm. it's a dandelo it's yeah. a it's a it's a grief it <laughs> and ah, oh, that's so cool it really is that's the end of the book guys leading us to our ratings i want to say something eloquent and i want to go on and on but i can't because i just like i'm still kind of recovering from having read it and this was the first time i read it and i loved it it was tragic and awesome and the back of the book is right. Truly the most terrifying Stephen King book I've read. The hardest one. I would have to give it five out of five blue chambray shirts. It is unreal how good this book is. It is so dark and so harrowing and oddly beautifully written. It's astounding. Uh, five out of five blue chambray shirts, obviously. Okay, I'm, I'm going to bring things down. If we can bring them down even further. About... The about the point where we picked up on this episode, uh, as I was reading it, my brother-in-law passed away. So as I have been reading this book, I have been with my family going through grieving someone who has left us too soon. 
and and being a part of those moments that they talk about in in the book of where the the grief makes you think that you would make whatever sacrifice you would do any possible thing to let that person walk in the door one more time and being a part of that and reading Lewis going through that. I became obsessed with finishing the rest of this book. Like it it pulled me in, in a way that I cannot explain how powerful my connection to the end of this book was because of all that. And I think that it will forever be an incredibly meaningful book to me because of all of that. Uh, And it also in a lot of ways really helped with, with that grieving. Um, And, and yeah, it's, it's surprising to say that with all of that darkness, it was um, an amazing experience emotionally. Um, And, uh, and I just, I love this book. It's, it's fantastic. And I am without a doubt, it is the most terrifying emotional thing I've ever read in my life. Five out of five blue chambray shirts. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us on our next episode where we will be talking about the movie Pet Cemetery, the original, the remake, and of course, Pet Cemetery 2. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you that there is no gain without risk. Perhaps no risk without love. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Once again, this episode is brought to you by our friends, The $1 Producer Project. This is an artist fund whose purpose is to give creators more opportunities without shouldering the financial burden alone. For only a dollar a month, you can help produce up-and-coming artists' live shows, art shows, films, and so much more. Find The $1 Producer Project on Patreon. Okay, I'm going to make a bold statement, and Josh and Ben are conveniently not here to disagree with me. I really do believe that what Gage said to Judd about Norma was true. When Judd and Lewis do it, we roll our eyes in disgust and accept that men will be men. But when Norma does it, she's too sweet and pure, so it has to be a trick. Women's hearts are stony too. We grow what we can. And, as Ben would say, we tend it good also. If you disagree with me, don't bury your feelings. Let them sprout on our Facebook or Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. Send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. Let's really dig into this debate. Okay, I promise. No more. If you'd like to support Dairy Public Radio and get some sweet stuff in return, find us on Patreon and join a tier that strikes your interest. I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and I've always heard hosts talk about how much it means to them when listeners support them on Patreon or when they rate and review them on iTunes. And now I'm going to do the same because I finally get it. It really means more to us than you guys know, and it helps us more than you can ever know. Whether it's through our Patreon or a review, we can't express our gratitude enough. We're still a small, relatively unknown podcast, and you are all how we get more listens. So thank you. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.